And I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Last week we read the compelling story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We read of Mary and Martha requesting that Jesus come immediately to help their sick brother. And we saw that Jesus intentionally delayed and that they would have to go through the angst of, of, of struggling with why Jesus delayed, why he didn't show up on time. To meet them. And we saw how Thomas was frustrated, along with the rest of the disciples, that to do the healing, to go back to Lazarus' house, they had to go back to Judea where they were about to stone Jesus. So they say, Really? This is what we're doing? We're heading back into harm's way. And yet they follow. And in the midst of their frustration and disappointment, in the midst of their fear, none of them realize the glory that, that exists on the end of that road, which is resurrection is Lazarus being raised from the dead. And it's on the heels of that event that we pick up today. The stories, the passages are intimately related. They really shouldn't be separated because a man claiming to be God has raised someone from the dead. And that basically requires a timeout. There's a a play has been done on the field for which there is no rule book. And people have to wrestle with what is happening and decide how they're going to react to it. We see essentially that people decide either you're all in for someone with that kind of authority who does that kind of thing, or you're against him. And he's demonstrating such power that you have to destroy him. It's the only option left. This is the place in John where moving forward, we find that the religious leaders will actually intentionally conspire to kill Jesus. To frame our thoughts this morning, I'd like to focus on the two questions that are posed in the midst of the story itself. The first question the Pharisees posed to to the council, which is, what are we to do? And then later, the people ask, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? So those are the two questions, or sets of questions, and we'll begin with, what are we to do? In verse 45, we're told that uh, some Jews come to believe in Jesus as a result of Lazarus being raised from the dead. But we're also told 
that some go to the Pharisees to tell what Jesus has done, to kind of spill the beans to those who have already set themselves against Jesus. Interestingly, no one is denying that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. No one is is posing, oh, it was a hoax or it was a gimmick. The reality of the event has caused people to act decisively so that there's no neutral ground. There's also not really the sense that anybody's standing in the background, well, I'm going to wait and see. Again, when someone shows up claiming to be God and raises someone from the dead, it invites decisive action, decisive commitment. Those who believe are taking a significant stand. John has already told us in the course of his gospel that those who are identifying with Jesus are being kicked out of the synagogue. Now, the equivalent of that for us would be you being kicked out of your church, kicked out of all your social circles, your kids kicked out of their school. Right? The, the one hub of, uh, of first century Judaism socially is the synagogue. And so there's great cost for identifying with Jesus. Now, some of you know some of that. You know a bit of what it is to identify with Jesus. You've spoken truth and love to a friend, and perhaps you've lost that friendship. Some of you are not invited to many holiday parties because you don't participate in the debauchery that occurs, and by not participating, you you act as an agent of conviction because you polarize, you bring light into darkness. Other of you, other of you, others of you, intentionally. Deprive yourself of material goods so that you have more to give away to the church and to the poor. And in all of these ways, you identify, you suffer something in identifying with Jesus. And I think Jesus would indeed say to that, well done. But not all are choosing to engage costs to identify with Jesus. The Pharisees, Right, some run and tell the Pharisees what Jesus has done, and the Pharisees, upon hearing what has happened, go to the council, which is the Sanhedrin in verse 47. The Sanhedrin was a real ruling power in Jerusalem. It was comprised mostly of the Sadducees and would, was led by the chief, the high priest. And so they go to the, to the, uh, the Sanhedrin, but notice in verse 47 how they phrase the question. Look there. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Isn't it somewhat astounding that the question is not, could Jesus be who he claims to be? Or is the Messiah truly present? Remember, we're we're on the heels of a man being raised from the dead. The question is not, is Jesus true? question is, what are we to do? The question focuses immediately on the power and prestige of the religious leaders that is threatened by the person of Jesus. Listen, right? If if people are going to start following him, they're going to listen to him and not to us. And if that happens, then the Romans may come and clean house. And the, the question is not wholly unreasonable. In the time period that we're talking about, uh, you know, Rome didn't have a significant presence in Jerusalem, but they had legions of soldiers not far north. And in recent history of our passage, there had been uprisings in, in Jerusalem, which the Romans had come down and squashed. And thousands of young Jews had been crucified as a result of the rebellion. So the Jews are afraid that the Romans will come down and this kind of 
tragic ending may happen again as a result of Jesus' leadership. Yet, would any of that matter if Jesus was who he said he was? Would you be concerned about the Roman response if Jesus is actually sent from God, if he is Messiah, and if he has the power to raise the dead? If Jesus is those things, then that that important question perhaps recedes in the background and we see that it is indeed not the primary question or the essential question. Is not the essential question here, who is Jesus? Is he true? Now, what are we to do is an important question, but the religious leaders are allowing the important question to trump the essential or the primary question. That's an incredibly effective way to avoid Jesus. As we're talking this morning about one's response to who Jesus is, I would not want to give you the impression that that choice is entirely up to you. John has made it clear that one does not come to the Father unless called by the Father. And it is only God's mercy to you who are completely dead that He brings you to life and brings you to Jesus. But that being true, we have to recognize that at the same time, Reading the end of John chapter 11, there is both part of us that identify with those who believe and there is part of us that identify with those who go to rebel against Jesus. There's part of you that loves Jesus, that new part that has been renewed as a result of His resurrection, but there's part of you that hates Jesus, which is that old part, and you hate that God steals power and prestige from you in the same way that the religious leaders hate it. The religious leaders avoid Jesus by asking the really important question, which is, who is he? And they pretend to be afraid, concerned about what the Romans are going to come and do. Aren't they going to crush us all and aren't the people going to follow Jesus? And the ironic part about this passage is that the answer is yes. Nothing that the Jewish leaders are going to do is going to prevent people from following Jesus. And nothing is going to prevent the Romans coming and absolutely demolishing Jerusalem in the not-too-distant future. Those things are inevitable, and perhaps their actions even hasten those things coming about. Unquestionably, the Jewish leaders feel that their power is threatened. They're afraid that Rome will come and remove them and their power and their nation altogether. But again, I have to come back to that question with which I've struggled. Would that really matter if the Jewish leaders believed that Jesus was who he said he was? The answer, of course, is that they don't really believe that he said he is who he said he was. We realize that something much more significant is going on at a deeper level for the life of the religious leaders as they try to process who Jesus is. And in a, in a word, it's betrayal. What do I mean by that? How do the religious leaders feel betrayed in the midst of the unfolding story of Jesus? Well, if Jesus is really God, if he is really Messiah, and has come to do, fulfill the promises of God, the religious leaders thought that they understood the promises of God well. And as Jesus shows up and begins to act in a way that doesn't conform with their expectation of how the story is going to go, then they they must decide that either they have the story wrong, and must reconfigure all their expectations, 
or that Jesus is wrong. And if they've got the story wrong, then really there's a sense in which you would feel betrayed by God. If you're a religious leader in the first century, you believe that you have been very committed to holiness, to righteousness. You've been very serious. You know the law better than anyone. And you have sought to be faithful to it. And as a result of that faithfulness, you believe that you will be favored by God. And then God shows up in the flesh. And His priorities seem to be different. And He doesn't seem to care about Israel's enemies, which is what you think He will care about. And what's even more is, He doesn't have very nice things to say about you. He's far more interested in people like prostitutes and poor people and tax collectors. And so as a result, this person, if God has shown up in the flesh, He's come in a very surprising fashion. Contrary to many of our expectations, and we can't help but feel a little bit betrayed as a religious leader in the first century because it doesn't conform with our expectations of how the story should go. It's, it's really a Job moment for the religious leaders. You know, we like to beat up on them a bit, but you know, the story of Job, one who's righteous before God, and God allows suffering to come to him simply to test him. And Job becomes angry. He wants justice. He doesn't feel like God has treated him appropriately. That the, what's happening in the midst of his story isn't legitimate based on his behavior. This is what's going on for the religious stories. What's going on in the story isn't legitimate based on their behavior. There's a commitment to righteousness and holiness that should be honored on their part, but they feel betrayed. And I've said already, what is true of the religious leaders is true of you. All of you have felt betrayed by God at some point. Somewhere along the way, your story has taken a turn, where it has gone into an area of pain, destruction, you have suffered, you have been alienated, you have got, ended up in a place or experienced something that is very hard for you to reconcile with your notion of who God is and what His power is. And as a result of having gone through that, you cannot help but feel betrayed. Because you have an understanding of God and certain expectations about how your story should go. And when it goes in that direction, there's a sense of betrayal. And you ask, well, what are we to do? Just like the religious leaders. Indeed, what are we to do? As we alluded to in the, uh, in the children's lesson, eventually as you work through... It, some of the things that have happened in your own life, but the story at large, you can go back to the beginning. Why was the fruit so attractive? Why did God let the snake into the garden? Right, the story, the hard parts of the story, the hard parts of your story, are hard parts that God has permitted or willed. They're not something that snuck up on God. And in that, yeah, there is a sense of betrayal. God, why? how would you let this happen? Why? And so again, we ask the question, what are we to do? And so often we can allow an important question to trump the primary question. The primary question is, who is Jesus? What do we find in Him? And yet an important question can always trump it. What does this actually look like? In high school, when God failed to give me the friends that I thought I should have, my question would become, well, how do I get those friends that I want? Not necessarily, you know, what does it mean 
to honor Jesus in the midst of my high school relationships. Or in college, when God failed to bring me to the attention of the girls that I was interested in, shockingly, <laughs> right? An important question to me, how do I get the attention of this girl or that girl? Right? Rather than, you know, what really, if, if I'm in Christ, what, it, what does it mean to seek God in the midst of dating and looking for my spouse? In my 20s, when God failed to make me as significant as I knew I should be, my question became, what is my identity? Who am I? An important question, yes, but not the essential question. The essential question would be, who am I in Christ? Who has he made and, and saved me to be? Other questions persist in our area of the world on a daily basis in which the threat of the important question, what are we to do, might trump the essential question, who is Jesus? When you uh, fail to have the friends that you want, how do I make the friend, those friends trumps the question of how do you experience the friendship of Jesus and extend that friendship to others? When you don't think that God has given you what you need, perhaps what you deserve, right? I deserve this new piece of technology. I deserve this new car. I've worked hard. It's time to upgrade in some fashion. When God doesn't provide that, then the question becomes, well, how do I get this for myself? How do I have more things and more money rather than perhaps how do I, how do I organize my life so I can give more away? Or indeed, when life feels really hard and God feels like he's very absent, questions become the important questions. The questions that press in on us are, how do I escape? How do I experience more pleasure? When the important question would be, how do I pick up my cross and follow Jesus faithfully? You see, the religious leaders didn't want Jesus' agenda. They wanted their own agenda, and so they allow questions informed by that agenda to trump what is truly important. And following on the heels of Lazarus being raised on the dead, this means really that they're not interested in resurrection. Remember, no one is debating or disputing that the resurrection has occurred. And so the religious leaders are deciding and distancing themselves from Jesus. We're not really interested in resurrection. And that's the same thing that we decide when we distance ourselves from Jesus. Why would we say we don't want resurrection? The only reason that you would say that you don't want resurrection is that you don't really believe that you're dead. And not believing that you are truly dead, then... You don't need Jesus really to give you life. You just need Jesus to save some small aspect of you, or small part, to serve something minor. When we feel betrayed by God, we rebel against Him in anger and frustration rather than trusting Him. And when we do that, how are we ever going to be rescued by Him? You know, as we watch the religious leaders say, We don't like the way the story of Jesus is unfolding. What are we going to do now? Let's move to kill him. There's part of that in our hearts as God's story unfolds in our lives. Part of growing up in Christ, I think growing in maturity as one who follows God, is actually being at the place where you can say, yes, I'm very frustrated. 
God, you know the thing that you allowed to happen or are allowing to happen brings me such pain and suffering, I cannot possibly conceive why you have permitted it. And I've never brought this to you before because I'm scared to. I'm scared of the answer. I'm scared of what this means for how you work in this world, and I'm scared of the unpredictability it means for the rest of my days. But it's only in that point where we say, God, I don't like your story, but I trust you that we begin to experience what real faith is. Do you get that? What I'm suggesting to you is up to that point, faith is kind of pretend. It's not really real. Until you're at the place where you say, God, I get what you're unfolding, I get what you're allowing, but I don't like it. And I understand that you're calling me to trust you anyway as the one who brings life to the dead. And we saw this in the, the, the story of Mary and Martha, where they want Lazarus to be healed before he dies, and Jesus shows up two days late. The story of the disciples where Jesus says, let's go to Judea. And they say, oh, okay, we're going to die. Frustrations in the midst of their story. But you say, say, okay, even though I'm frustrated and angry and hurt, I trust that you will work something out of this that is ultimately resurrection. That's where real faith is. That's when we begin to grow up into God. When God's, God's agenda really unfolds, And this brings us to the second question, which will be much briefer than the first. Uh, Caiaphas, you know, you can imagine the Sanhedrin debating, what are we going to do? It's the first question. Caiaphas speaks, you know, you've probably got this old high priest, and it's great. He just leads with, you know nothing at all. Be quiet. You don't understand. This is not a complicated matter. Either we can allow Jesus to continue and we'll bring the anger of the Romans down to bear on the nation and many will die, or we can just take care of Jesus. Right? It's, for Caiaphas, this is not a difficult decision. Let's just take Jesus out. It's the easiest thing to do. But John tells us that unbeknownst to Caiaphas, even as he speaks these words, his words have a divine purpose that is not merely earthly. We see the sovereign hand of God Right, which is behind all, everything we've been saying this morning, in the midst of what's happening. And yes, Cavus has no idea what he's saying, but that's exactly the idea that Jesus will die on behalf of God's people. And it is far better that one perfect one should die on behalf of the whole than that the whole should die. The intent of the religious leaders then after Caiaphas's word is what? To put Jesus to death. And anyone who knows about his whereabouts as he, as he recedes into the background, Jesus isn't going to walk openly, is to inform the religious leaders. And so the people are worried now. Is he going to show up? Or is Jesus simply going to disappear? Even as the people in some ways have moved closer to Jesus, as others, though, have now decided to betray God in the flesh, the question arises Having, you know, those people, the religious leaders, having chosen to betray God, having chosen to move away from God, will God now move away from them? Will God now move away to all the... Is Jesus going to show up? Of course, uh, the answer is yes. And John is setting up a wonderful picture that even as we betray God in the flesh, He embraces us. See, from this point forward, it's incredibly important to John 
to portray Jesus as the Passover lamb. He's going to go to great pains to do it. And here he says, the Jerusalem is ready for the Passover feast. But the people say, well, is Jesus going to show up? He says, if John is begging the question, the Passover is prepared. But he's suggesting there will be no Passover feast without the Passover lamb. Will he come? Yes, indeed he will. Jesus will come as the Passover lamb, as the one to be sacrificed on the behalf of his people. Jesus will come, and as giving life to Lazarus has led to his death, his death will lead to life for us all. And for that, let us give thanks. Our gracious God, we praise you this morning. We thank you for the life that is found in Christ. And even as the people wrestle with who he is, and we see our hearts exposed and in all of the wrestling that is transpiring, we ask that you would forgive us for so often opting for our agenda over the agenda of Christ, opting for our story over your story. And in that, we have so much in common with the religious leaders. We are not nearly as far removed as we pretend from driving a nail into your hand. And so we thank you that even in spite of that, you draw us to yourself and you lay down your life willingly. Indeed, even for the things that occur in our life, we would at times punch you in the face. And still, you embrace us and draw us near. And for that, Father, even as we see the religious leaders conspiring against you, it was all part of your plan. And we thank you that you would give up your life so that ours might be had again. We praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.